Amen. Uh, children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. And um, <clears throat> as we dismiss the kids, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we'll continue in our, our time in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I want to make note of the fact that on the, on the, on the back, near the sermon notes, uh, these, these forms will be in your bulletin next week. I apologize that they're not in your, your bulletin. That's my fault. I wound up uh, going into my usual allergy tailspin on Friday and, uh, and did not have all my details together. Uh, you'll be happy to know, or you'll be thankful or happy for me that I've been on antibiotics for 24 hours. Um, whatever is up here will be gone by next week, and uh, so today you'll just have to tolerate me um, and, and, and my, my voice the way it is. Uh, but there is, a, there is a form there for you to uh, follow through on what we've been speaking about, um, what we spoke about last week in the pulpit, the nomination of additional elders for our church. Thank you. And um, so uh, if you would take one of these, uh, in part, um, my encouragement to you is to prayerfully consider who it is that, that should serve our church in terms of, of guarding the truth, uh, guarding the, the people, and guarding the church. Overall, uh, those who will administer care and, uh, and shepherding to the church. And so um, they're back there in, in the very back. You can, you can take them along with you as you go, uh, or they'll be in the, in the bulletin for several weeks as we move toward um, electing additional elders. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 <coughs> says this in, in verse 31. The Bible says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, these are the words of Jesus as he is laying out the standard of righteousness that, that humans are called to because, because God is holy. And so we're going to pray, and then we will spend time uh, examining, unpacking this, uh, this text, which certainly uh, in our day and age just as it was in the day and age in which Jesus spoke it, is uh, difficult. Uh, some might say controversial, and I know for some, perhaps will be painful to hear. Uh, but we will pray that as we hear this, that we will see through the law, and we will see the gospel of grace, and we'll see the, the kind, compassionate, loving character of God. We pray this now, as we, as we prepare, we'll pray in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to hear your word. Father, I pray that as we consider this topic of divorce, that we would see that this is not the primary issue. That the primary thing that we're to be concerned with is your character and your standard for living. We're to see the sanctity of of marriage, and we're to see the original intent of what you created. And Father, then, knowing that, that sin enters the world and muddies or ruins so many relationships, whether it's our own sin or the sin of someone else or our 
sinful tendencies brought into the relationship. Father, many times what is good, what you have created to be good, breaks apart. Father, as we, as we consider this text, I pray that no one would hear the condemnation that comes from the law exclusively, but that they would see your gracious character, that they would see your kindness, your love, and your compassion, and that they would see the goodness of Jesus laying out a standard for relationships, laying out a, a moral code for us to follow that we might know how to love the way that you do and that we might know how it is that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. I pray for each person in this room. Father, in a, in a room of this size and knowing what I know of, of individual relationships and, and, and friendships and what I know from interacting with people, uh, there, there is the possibility that there will be much confusion. There's the possibility of offense. But I pray that we would see your graciousness and that we would understand that in connection with your holiness and that we would be encouraged, Father. And I pray that, that for those who are here who have never been married or who are considering marriage, I pray that they would, they would see the commitment that you are calling them to within the boundary of your grace and that they would live in a way that honors your standard, Father, and seeks to uphold it, knowing that, that pain and difficulty will be with us in this world until we meet you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think that anybody who uh, begins to, to speak about the subject of divorce without any sense of fear or trepidation is a fool. And so uh, I come this morning, uh, as I begin, uh, speaking with a degree of fear. I'd like to say it's not the fear of man primarily, but, but, a, but a holy fear, um, wanting to be careful with my words and, and to speak clearly. And so uh, fear mixed with conviction. As a church, we are friends and family. We are the family of God. The Bible says that we are members of Christ's body and therefore members of one another. And so um, I know that for some of you, this is your past. And there's a, uh, perhaps a fear of rejection or of being pointed out or, or of um, being hurt by what's about to be said. In a, in a very uh, chilling sense, because human beings have an enormous capacity for sin, uh, for some, this is our future. And I think if, if we were to say, no, uh, that's not possible, I think that is, that's a foolish thing. I think what we ought to say instead is, may it never be. Uh, may God spare us from this fate. May God cause love and grace and encouragement and forgiveness to flourish in marriage relationships that we might walk in the way of the Lord. God calls us to holiness. 
Holiness is, is not just some intangible way of, of being that, that we're to discover. Holiness is conformity to God's character. Not conformity to a standard that he does not live up to, but conformity to his way of, of living. Conformity to his way of, of acting. We're to be perfect, Jesus says, as his heavenly Father is perfect. And yet, we can be encouraged, strengthened, supported by the truth that God is loving and faithful and gracious. As a father, he looks to his children who, who fail and who struggle and who don't live up to his standard, and he does not reject them, but instead covers their imperfections with his grace. And so as we consider the Father this morning, perhaps you may feel at some point that is an area in which I failed in the past. Uh, I, did not, I did not handle this relationship well as it ended. I can remember preaching a, a sermon years ago on a completely different topic and somebody walked up to my wife afterwards and said, he is talking about me. Not, not in a pointing out and saying, you are the person, but in a, in a as, as, the, as the person or the behavior was described, I just, I knew in my heart that that's the way that I live. You may feel that way this morning. My encouragement to you is to feel the comfort of forgiveness. Comfort when wronged. Comfort if you have been sinned against. Forgiveness if you have done wrong to another. The Bible scholar John Stott says this, There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. And then, speaking about the fear that he embraces in considering the topic of divorce, one, uh, it's a difficult subject for Stott. He was single his entire life, but two, he ministered in the real world and knew uh, the controversy and, and, and disagreement and the emotional attachment to the subject. He says this, because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this, on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, I take courage in my hands and speak on. And so we consider the topic of divorce. When Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, he's con continuing through his kingdom program. He is confronting the ethics of the society that he lives in, that he was born into, and that he's come to, to preach the gospel, to, to live the gospel in. He will, he will die at the end of his ministry and accomplish forgiveness and grace for all whom God is calling into his family. But Jesus must confront the way in which the society has either uh, corrupted or changed the meaning of the ethics which God gave them. You know that, that God brought the Israelites out of captivity. 
They were in Egypt for 400 years, growing from 70 people into a nation of millions. And then God delivered them up. He brought them out of Egyptian society and was bringing them into the land of the Canaanites. And he said, I don't want you to live like the Egyptians lived. I don't want you to live like the Canaanites lived. I want you to live according to my standards and my ways. And so he gave them the law, a culture, a way of living. And over the course of thousands of years, the sinfulness of the people, the Bible says that we are all sinners in the book of James, that we sin in in different ways, but that we all sin. Ephesians says that we're born in sins and trespasses, and that God must raise us to new life in order for us to be acceptable to him. That's my paraphrase of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But Jesus confronts the fact that sinfulness changes the ethics which God gave to the society. The proverb, the reduced thought on marriage and the end of marriage in that day was this. They said, if you divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate. That's it. That's the, that's the rightness of the ending of a marriage. If you're going to divorce your spouse, and this was something in Jesus' day which was only able to be initiated by a man, women had no right to pursue a divorce, if a man is going to put away his wife, you must give her a certificate that says that that she has been divorced. That was to provide her with some degree of protection so so that she would be free to remarry. That culture knew no uh, divorce without remarriage. It was assumed in that culture that, 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 that one, that a woman would not be able to make it on her own economically, and so she would need to pursue remarriage. But she could not be accused of indecency or of, of cheating. The Bible also, let me get into Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. This is where this, this proverb is drawn from, although it is corrupted and twisted. It's changed into something else. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Moses, speaking to the topic, says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, notice the conditional, uh, the, the, the conditional word there, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, notice what's being said there. Did you see how many conditions there were? If a man marries and his wife, he finds some indecency in her and he puts her away, and she marries someone else and that man puts her away, the first man cannot take her again. That's an abomination. That's what, that's what is spoken by Moses there. That in Jesus' day has been reduced to this. If you are going to pursue a divorce, if you're going to end your marriage, you must give the person that you're divorcing a certificate. They, they reduced it from you cannot divorce and allow someone to remarry another and then remarry later. That's, that's, 
That is a, a perversion of the institution of marriage, according to the Lord. And so it is, it is not to be. So they had, they had drawn out a, an idea of, of the simplicity of dissolving a marriage from a very complicated um, statement by Moses on this topic of divorce and remarriage. It's also difficult to address Jesus' words on marriage here in Matthew 5 unless we look at God's intention for marriage in his larger teaching on divorce in Matthew 19. And so if you turn in your Bible there, we're going to look at Matthew 19, and now we're going to, we're going to kind of pick up some speed here, and we're going to, we're going to see some applications, and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll focus in on, on what Jesus is saying here. Matthew 19, this is later in Jesus' ministry. Right now, he is, uh, in, in Matthew 5, he's teaching for the very first time. He's laying out his program of, of morality and ethics as the Messiah. In Matthew 19, he is, he is under attack. This is what you could call the time of controversy, where prior to his crucifixion, all those parties who are aligning themselves against Jesus and coming against him are asking him questions. They're heckling him and harassing him. And, uh, and so they're coming to him and testing him with difficult questions. This is the question that they ask in Matthew 19.3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You can imagine Jesus finishing and perhaps turning to answer another question, um, ready to be finished with the discussion. But they ask a second question. They said to him, and this is an echo of Deuteronomy 24.1, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? You can see the problem, or we, we, we will see the problem right there in that sentence. He, Jesus, said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There were two rabbis who taught on this subject, two major schools of thought on the issue of divorce. The first was the rabbi Hillel, who taught a very permissive attitude towards marriage. If there was some indecency, you'd see that in Deuteronomy 24.1, if a man marries a woman and finds some indecency in her, what does that mean? I wish you could go back and say, Moses, expand, tell us what that means. Hillel taught that it meant any indecency. And in the rabbinical writings, there are discussions about burnt dinners and unattractiveness, right? You'll see later on in the, in the scriptures, there are, there are passages and places where God says, don't forsake the wife of your youth because of the temptation because of, of the perhaps wideness of application here of trading up your older spouse for a younger model, right? 
If, if the indecency is that, is that the, the wife can be sent away because, because she doesn't meet the husband's standards, well, according to Hillel, that was a, a good reason. You could just go shopping for a younger bride. Just make sure you give them a certificate that tells them that you're no longer married. The rabbi Shammai, though, was a much more rigorous teacher, and he taught that, that the indecency was only some grave matrimonial offense, perhaps some premarital sin, some kind of lewdness. There was, uh, in the law, the punishment for adultery was death under the law, but by the time of Jesus, it was no longer enforced. If you think back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, right, Joseph is thinking through how to put Mary away, right? How to separate from her because he was a decent man and he didn't want to see her shamed, wronged. But he had decided in his mind that he was going to give her a certificate of divorce. He was just trying to figure out how. And then the angel appears and says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. The error that Jesus confronts in Matthew 19 is this. They come up to him and ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They give away their interpretation there. They are of the school of Hillel. They believe that it is okay, and they're just checking with Jesus. Do you follow our interpretation? By the way, let me just let me say this to you. The Pharisees, they'd have been people that we'd like. They, they're the good guys back in Jesus' day. Yeah, they, they may have laid exceptional burdens on people, but they were conservative. They believed in the word. They believed in the reality of God. The Sadducees and other parties, they, they thought that there was no resurrection. They didn't believe in the truth of God's word. They believed in political power and controlling the nation and culture. If, if we were in that, that, that time, we would have been like, nah, we kind of like the Pharisees. But on this issue, their theology was messed up. They thought, it's fine. It's okay. The teaching is, if there's any indecency, we can, we can uh, separate from our wife. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We ought to receive this as a, as a check on our modern culture as it relates to marriage. People might say, you can't enforce these kinds of standards today. You can't. You can't, you can't expect, you know, for, for marriages to endure forever nowadays. It just doesn't work that way. I would say this. We need to be careful of not committing the error of the Pharisees. The error of the Pharisees and many in our culture is to focus not on the institution and the design for marriage, but on the proper grounds for divorce. How, how, do, how do I bring divorce to pass? How do I make it happen? There are, there are many people who think if it doesn't work out, we'll just get a divorce. And that, that is what is functioning in our culture today because the primary value is not holiness and obedience to God's standards, but personal happiness. God, they, they say, God in quotes, would not expect me to endure the difficulty or the unhappiness of a marriage that's, that's not making me happy all the time. And so it's got to be my spouse or it's, it's, it's not you, it's me, right? It's, it's me. I'm just not, I'm not right. So we're going we're gonna to move on. And we'll find somebody else. Maybe we'll both find happiness. No, Jesus says. 
Don't search for the proper grounds for divorce. Look at the institution and God's design for marriage. Jesus' answer is this to the Pharisees. There's a, a bit of insulting here, I think. He says, have you not read? Speaking of the book of Genesis, which hopefully they had read, but I think maybe what he's hinting is that they're spending a lot of time reading rabbinical interpretation of the proper uh, grounds for divorce and not focusing on the scripture itself. He focuses on God's intent and design and not on, on their searching for exceptions. He answers them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is appealing to the original intent with regard to marriage. In the eyes of God, a married couple are no longer two distinct individuals, but now they are one unit. They are one flesh. And that was God's design. Secondly, Jesus appeals to the sovereign work of God. I think it's a sad tragedy that many people do not view marriage as an act of faith. When we make vows before God, we confess that we trust the goodness of God by faith that he is drawing two people together. And then it is for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, good times and bad, like fighting and not fighting. Right? Agreeing on certain things and not agreeing on other things. There's, a, there's the idea that God has called two together for the rest of their lives. The sad reality is that many, not all, but many, quit their marriage relationships before they've worked through the implications of grace, sacrifice, fidelity, the fact that they're both sinners. And the intent may be to escape unhappiness rather than to pursue holiness. Second point that Jesus makes here is understand that divine concession is not the same as divine intention. What God allows is not the same as what God intends. God permitting something is not the same as him approving something. We can find many examples in the Bible. I think that the death penalty is one of them. The fracturing of the world into nations. These are things which God does in light of human sin, not things that he intended or desired from the beginning. The Pharisees echo Jesus' response that marriage is a, is a permanent bond created by marriage not to be torn apart by man, they echo or they respond to him by saying, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and then to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Why does God make an allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 and in other passages of scripture. Why is there an allowance there if it is not his intent? Jesus is clear, because of the wickedness of human hearts. The concession that we looked at in Deuteronomy 24, the writing of a certificate, 
I believe, is there to prevent a hasty decision by a husband. If you send her away, you cannot have her back. It's there to protect the wife from exploitation and from entrapment. Imagine if in a a situation where, where there is a husband in Deuteronomy 24 who hates his wife and there is no means for them to separate from one another, how will he treat her? What will he do to her? If you back an animal into a corner, you give it no choice but to fight. And allowing no escape for the wicked spouse or a sinning spouse would, could result in mistreatment, neglect, and perhaps even worse, murder. And if you think that's not a possibility, you just don't watch enough reality television. (laughs) Right? I mean, people, when trapped with no escape, do wicked, horrible things. This may be the Lord's concession, but it is not the Lord's plan. He loves marriage. In Malachi 2.16, God says this, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There, the Lord in Malachi is saying that he hates divorce. Therefore, examine what's going on inside of your own heart. Check your spirit and don't allow yourself to act treacherously. Guard your heart. Pull up the roots and weeds of bitterness. Pursue and imitate the heart of God. Paul encapsulates it this way, speaking of relationships with all human beings, particularly those in the church. He will move on to marriage in chapter 5 of Ephesians, but in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he speaks of the relationship that Christian brothers should have towards one another. This is especially true of the Christian brother and sister who are married. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Why is it that the Lord concedes to allow divorce in some situations? Because of the hardness and wickedness of the human heart. But what is the Christian's responsibility and the Lord's intent for the individual? It's that they would have a tender heart, a heart that forgave, just as God in Christ forgave them. Why then this statement about adultery in verse 32 of chapter 5 and verse 9 of chapter 19, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He is, he is saying here that if there has been no breaking of the, the marriage covenant, if there's been no going outside the marriage covenant, then to divorce without that situation being present is to force the person into that situation. To to make them adulterous. And to marry a divorced woman is to commit adultery. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
The Lord's view of the marriage relationship is this, lasting, permanent, not to be dissolved. And that ought to be our view as well. And we'll talk about exceptions in just a moment, but I want to speak to to the young, to the unmarried, to the single. Uh, The Bible says you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The idea here is, is that what we do with our bodies is of ultimate consequence. We ought to be very careful how we use our bodies prior to marriage, during marriage. The Lord is concerned about these things. We live in a very society and we ought to say as believers I have been bought with a price I am not free to do with my body whatever I desire as a matter of fact that's a that's evidence of walking according to the flesh that's evidence of living contrary to the spirit the Bible says those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh they are, they are putting what is, what is fleshly to death. And so the encouragement this morning is to remain free from immorality, whether unmarried or pre-married, married, single again. Be free from immorality. We live in a culture that treats marriage and divorce lightly. I was listening to the news this week, and it was announced, this may not impact you in any significant emotional way, it doesn't really hit me, other than tragic out of concern for kids, that uh, Brad and Angelina are calling it quits. You know, it's like, I was kind of shocked, because I thought that happened years and years and years ago, based on (laughs) what I've read in the checkout line at the supermarket, you know, I also, you know, thought that Similar, some, some people had died of cancer seven or eight times. Um, and, uh, but but so, so what's printed in the gossip rags is that, is that this marriage is falling apart. You know, I, I, was, I was listening on the radio, and the immediate response of the commentator was like, well, finally. You know, and it's like, ah, oh, they've got... Okay, Nancy and I were in a restaurant in New York City years and years ago, it was this like space restaurant where you like got on this shuttle in the lobby and it like took you, I think that we only had Sam and Jack at the time, right? We're in New York City, we went to this Mars 2112 restaurant. I was kind of expecting the guy who served me the hamburger to be dressed like an alien or something. But it was like, it was like being on another planet in this restaurant and there, lo and behold, three tables away was Brad Pitt and multiple little children. There he was. And she was probably off filming a movie or something, but there was Brad Pitt. And he did not have good skin. No, he did not. And, and I was sitting there thinking, like, all this time people have been saying, like, Brad Pitt. And I'm like, I do not look half bad. You know? 
But, but, but we live in a culture that celebrates these two separating. You go, girl. You know, finally. Like, that guy's a dog or whatever. And we don't think, like, the effect on these kids, the impact, the, 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 the weight of what's going to happen. The guy actually said, oh, do you expect me to cry for six wealthy children? Ah, oh, the lack of compassion there. The Pharisees that we might have considered orthodox in their day, they treated marriage lightly as well. We as Christians should cherish God's standard. We ought to nurture it and seek to rescue troubled marriages. And we ought to teach and lift up the meaning of marriage in our homes and in our church. You know, guys, this means that you don't say, oh, you know, the old ball and chain, right? This means wives don't run down your husbands in the presence of the children. Don't run down your husband in the presence of your husband. Don't run down your husband in the presence of your friends, right? You know, there's a, there's a need to magnify the meaning and the sanctity of marriage. But sadly, remaining happily married, like all relationships, doesn't depend just on one person and one person's values. And so there are situations, because of the sinfulness of humanity, where a marriage will end. There are other situations where remaining married can cause damage to spouse and home, as in a case where a spouse refuses to end an adulterous relationship but insists on continuing it. I will have both. I will not make a decision. Paul will use the word enslaved in 1 Corinthians 7, describing this kind of situation, to highlight the seriousness of wrong for those who would say that there is never a situation where a marriage should end for the Christian. In all of these situations, we ought to weep with those who weep and mourn the death of a marriage that breaks apart because of human sinfulness. Jesus' response to the situation of divorce in Matthew 5 is to say that it is not the Lord's intent that marriage ought to be treated with the highest of esteem but we ought not to esteem it so highly that we then exclude anything else in the scripture that is said that would be foolishness Paul helps us understand 1 Corinthians 7:10 he says to the married I give this charge not I but the Lord the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. He is now speaking to the Gentile culture, not to the Jewish culture, but the Gentile culture where, where there was this idea of, of having partners outside the home was considered no big deal at all. Paul is now bringing the standard of, of monogamy to that culture and saying, remain faithful. The husband should not divorce his wife. He's counteracting the idea that, that some might say, I'm a Christian now. I need a Christian wife. I need to get rid of my non-Christian wife. Uh, no. 
There are also some who might take Paul's argument that it is better to be single and to say, now that I'm a Christian, it's better that I would be alone. Divorce is never a way to attain personal holiness. Jesus is not the enemy of a marriage, ever. 1 Corinthians 7.12, he says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But isn't it, isn't it unholy for me to be a Christian and him not to be a Christian and for us to remain married? No. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This verse is so tortured and confused by some people, but it simply means that, that, the, that the believer is not corrupted somehow in a material way by being married to an unbeliever. You may have never even thought of that, but the Corinthians certainly did. But when someone consistently acts like an unbeliever, and I believe this is the case when there is physical abuse or when there, there is abandonment and separation, vanishing for long periods of time, refusing to, to be clear about what is going on, living in a, a long, tormenting, adulterous relationship. This is what Paul says, verse 15 of chapter 7, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so there are some situations where a marriage will die. And we ought to mourn and weep with those who mourn. Jesus, though, is confronting a culture that views marriage perhaps the way that we would view clothing. This is old. It's out of date. It's unfashionable. I will get with the times. I will update, right? I will, I will throw away what's old and, and bring in what's new. Jesus would say no to remain faithful and firm and to view marriage as a symbol of love and care. Malachi 3.6 illustrates the heart of the Lord in the way that he treats his people. He is committed to them in a permanent way that does not change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Praise God if we don't see the initial implications of that. It is good to understand that what God says does not change. But he goes on and he tells us what he means by saying that. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Oh, imagine if for a moment, if God's opinion of us could change just for an instant, we were born in sin, children of wrath, dead in sins and trespasses, but God raised us to life, Ephesians 2, 4 says, and has seated us with Christ in heavenly places. If his attitude were to change and he did not view us with the righteousness of Christ, we would be destroyed. But his attitude does not change. He remains caring and kind to us. And we as believers ought to seek to keep our hearts soft, free from, from bitterness and from 
uh, hardening, that we might love those around us, how much more our husbands and wives. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. To the married and the pre-married, uh, when I go through premarital curriculum with a couple, we, we land in a place where I teach the four commitments. This is, this is what it means for the Christian to hold a high view of marriage. That we commit heading into the marriage that as much as it depends on us, there will be no divorce, no adultery, no abandonment of any kind, and no hardness of heart, no lasting hardness of heart. Because anybody who's, who's had their sanctification as a single go from this, this like slight, maybe like 7% grade, right? You get married and, that, and, the, and the, the, the task of being sanctified gets much harder, doesn't it? And then you have some kids and it's like they, they make no pretense or show of being unselfish, right? They are absolutely and utterly selfish from, from the You need to teach them and train them to think of others. No divorce. No adultery, no abandonment, no hardness of heart. Now to those who are here now and who have seen a marriage end, I say this, understand that the grace of God means that you are not second class. It's just sinfulness, hardness of heart, circumstances led to the disillusion, and I know that that's painful. we ought to hold up the standard of rightness no matter what the particular situation is though. Because that is what is good and that is what the Lord calls us to. A godly marriage calls us to a picture of God's relationship with his people. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. If we become one flesh with someone else. We ought to nourish and care for them and love them. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. As we close, I, I want to say this. Um, there are some who perhaps have found themselves in a situation where their marriage was dying, falling apart, and for whatever reason, 
they found themselves divorced. I would say this, know the compassion of the God of Hagar. When Abraham put Hagar out and sent her away, she left with her son Ishmael and she called upon the Lord and the Lord said, I will make him a great nation. He did not abandon her because of her marital state. Genesis 16, 13, when she ran away from the mistreatment of Abraham and Sarah, it says that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, after he provided miraculously for her to survive and for Ishmael to survive. And she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The Lord has compassion on those who are abandoned. And then there are those who perhaps you look back in your history and you can say, yeah, I was, I was involved. I was part of it. I was part of the end, my hardness of heart, my bitterness, my unforgiveness. I would say this. Remember the compassion of John 8. God, taking on human flesh, says to the woman caught in adultery, where are those who will condemn you? Where are your accusers? Look around, who do you see? And she looks around and says, there is no one, Lord. There's no one left to condemn her. And Jesus said, neither then do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. God is compassionate to those who come to him in repentance. Know that God will not leave you or forsake you if you've put your faith and trust in Christ. Hebrews 13.4, I'm going to read this as we close and say, uh, Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? As we close, let me, let me close by saying this. Wherever this text meets you or, or hits you today, know that the Lord's standard is there for our good, both for the, for the good of individuals and the good of society. And therefore, we can say, no matter what our condition, no matter what our situation, the Lord is good and his way is good. And we can know that with repentance, that, that if, if we have endured a difficult situation, if we have been abandoned or left or sinned against, that we are not second class that the Lord is kind and that for those who are married it is always 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 our task to be maintaining our heart Paul not Paul so easy to say Paul Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4 says above all guard your heart for from it flow the springs of life we ought to tend the condition of our hearts at all times 
What is it that leads to the breaking apart? It is the hardness of heart. And so we ought to seek always to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven us. Let's pray as we close. Father, it can be a difficult word to, to speak about marriage, but it is a good word. Marriage imitates your relationship towards your people. Marriage is not the reality of which your relationship to the church is a symbol, but marriage itself is a symbol of your relationship to your people. And so though we live in a world where marriages can break apart, we can be confident that your love for your people, your covenant with your people, you will never abandon it. When you save someone, when you call them to yourself, when someone repents and puts their faith and trust in you, you will not leave them or forsake them. Father, in all situations, your intention is that marriages will endure. But there are marriages that will end. And so, Father, I pray that as a church that we would be a people of compassion, that we would weep with those who weep, that we would seek to get involved and not just look the other way because of discomfort when a marriage is troubled, that we would not jump to conclusions when a marriage ends, but that we would seek to understand and seek to care and seek to be compassionate. But, Father, I, I pray that all of us would seek to live with the holiness that you lay out for us. Lord, I pray that no one here would hear and feel the sting of the law. It is Satan's desire that, that people would walk away feeling condemned or deflated. But instead, I pray that, that we would see your holiness and your righteousness, and we would say, from this moment on, no matter what, the, what has happened in the past, I will seek to serve and to honor the Lord in all things. I'll seek to be tenderhearted and compassionate and seek to forgive just as he has forgiven me. Father, may your grace be with us all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. stand and sing as we close. I once was lost in darkest night. You thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life.